Listen to the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning at verse 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Let me pray as we hear God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your instructions, for the power of your gospel, for the good news announced to us that Jesus is the the Savior who has been raised from the dead. Jesus is the Savior who will come again, the one who protects us from evil. And so, Lord, do that work by the power of your Spirit. Transform our hearts. Expose our sinfulness today by the power of your Word. Enable us to live with gospel hope and with boldness in your work and ministry in our hearts. Lord, for those that listen to your Word without faith in Christ, I pray that today would be a day of hope, a day of new life, a day of gospel understanding. Give them, even now, as we hear your Word proclaimed, faith to believe. Lord, for those of us that have put our trust in Christ, let us live Let us live lives that reflect his goodness and glory. And so, Lord, help us to hear your word, to apply it in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's verses 17 and 18 in the King James. One of the few verses in Scripture that I know better in the old King James than I do in the NIV of the church that I grew up in. And I know these verses in in that translation because of summer camp. I was in fifth grade, and I went to a Christian week-long summer camp, Camp Halawasa in, in South Jersey. It's, it's a name. It's completely made up. It doesn't have anything to do with, with tribes that lived there before. It's, it's Halawasa. It's just taking the first syllable of hallelujah, what a Savior. Haluasa. And I didn't really want to go, I have to admit, to camp. It was my younger sister, Chrissy, who really wanted to go to camp. She hated it. I loved it. I had a great week at camp, and I have proof of how good my week at camp was. Because on the last night, when moms and dads come the campfire, and the songs of all of the children at camp, who, who is given the medal? Engraved on the back, Camper of the Week. It's every mother's dream for their sweet, kind, conscientious, caring, compassionate son to be awarded Camper of the Week. And it's my sweet mother who had the great privilege of seeing her son receive this award. Now, in truth, it was, an, it was a significant week for me, a, a joy in learning the Scriptures, a, a reminder of God's love, of the, even a picture of the, 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 the college students that served. It gave me a, a glimpse of what, what a life of ministry would look like. But you see that there's also a danger in somebody who has now, for all these years, kept, a, <laughs> kept an award whose plastic is chipped, whose cheap metal is badly corroded. You see there's a danger in this kind of thing too. Because what does a boy think 
especially when his sister had a pretty terrible week. And he gets to come home with the medal around his neck, proof of his goodness, proof of his spiritual exaltation. It might as well say best kid ever, most spiritual boy who ever lived, because that's, that's what Camper of the Week sounds like. See, Paul is, is pressing us, pressing us to live lives of spiritual maturity and wisdom. But he wants to go deeper than an award can go. And it was a significant week, an important week in my life. But you know that there's also a way in which a kid who is a people pleaser can just play along in order to get the prize at the end. Because Paul wants to press us deeper, deeper into the spiritual transformation that is pictured for us, for the Thessalonians here. He's telling us what does it look like to live as a Christian. It means to be joyful, to pray continually, to give thanks. He's looking at heart transformation, a radical change that that can't be easily measured at the end of merely one week, but a lifetime of ministry, of service. And so as we, as we look at these verses, in, in my Bible, it's broken. These, short, these are some of the shortest verses in Scripture, which means if you're a kid at camp and you need to memorize a lot of verses, start memorizing here. See, there's a strategy in order to become camper of the week. If you need to memorize a lot of verses, memorize a bunch of short ones. Pray continually, oh, I got a whole verse done. Now, applying that is much more difficult. But you'll see in my, in my Bible, these, these short verses are broken up into just two little paragraphs, verses 16 through 18 and then 19 through 22. And, and really, that's how essentially we're going to kind of look at this passage. Looking at the inward change that comes to us from the outside. All right? We'll, we'll, we'll build that argument as we go along. It's inward change that Paul is looking at. And that's what we see in verses 16, 17, and 18. There are three short, direct, clear commands given to us. Be joyful, pray, and give thanks. And then, and then look at the adverbs. This is where it gets hard. Because any of us can be joyful, well, some of the time. But what is the command of verse 16? Be joyful always. When should we pray? Continually. Your life should be ordered by prayer, by relationship with God. When should you give thanks? It's all the time. In what kind of situations might you find yourself? When should you give thanks? In every circumstance. And so Paul's command here to be joyful is not a, it's not a stoicism, a mere stoicism. That's that ancient philosophy which is still around. We, we call someone stoic even today. That that sort of grin and bear it kind of philosophy, whatever comes my way, comes my way, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, that stiff upper lip that just faces life head on. But what Paul is saying is, is deeper than that. It's more than that. This is a joy rooted in the hope of the gospel. This is a joy that's, that's more than mere happiness. See, stoicism is just a, it's almost a passive acceptance of whatever happens. But you wouldn't call it joy. You would call it stoic acceptance. You'd call it a passive a, a willingness to just, to just get through life. But what Paul is saying is be joyful. And this isn't the simple emotion of, well, well, be happy. 
and kind of skip through life and ignore all of life's problems. No, it's, it's deeper than that. It's more fundamental. Paul is saying, be joyful. It's a confidence that what God has done for you, the promises God has made for you, are true. And, and, and remember the context that we're in here in these final chapters of this, of this letter. Paul spent a significant portion of chapters 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 telling us Jesus is coming again. So now be joyful always. It's a confidence rooted in God's future salvation, the certainty of God's promises given to us. It's the gospel that we see in this, in this letter. So flip to the first chapter, back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul describes the work of Jesus Christ in verses 9 and 10. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul, here's a report of, of the way in which God is at work in their lives. And look at the end of verse 9. The report tells how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the radical transformation that Paul is describing. The, the, what, does this, what does the change look like? It means you were serving idols. Now you're serving the living and true God. Verse 10, and now you wait for his son from heaven. This son whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you hear what the gospel message is? Jesus, who died for your sins, was raised from the dead, and Jesus is coming again. And notice the, the verb tenses, and I know it's been, it's been weeks since we looked at this passage. And so it's useful to kind of go back and, and remind ourselves, what is the, the context that Paul is describing the gospel here in, in 1 Thessalonians? Look, look at verse 10 again of chapter 1. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus currently rescues us because, chapters 4 and 5, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is active on our behalf. He is the one enthroned in heaven interceding for us. And the promise that Jesus will return when he comes as the judge of heaven and earth means that you and I have hope now. A confidence now. See, these simple commands of chapter 5, to be joyful always, to give thanks in all circumstances, those are difficult commands. Because we feel the sorrow, the weight of life, the heaviness of walking through a broken world. But when does Paul say to be joyful? When you need to go to the hospital. When does Paul say to be joyful? When you will face the surgeon's knife. When does Paul say to be, be joyful? When you will walk into a funeral for one you love. All the time. And that doesn't mean a, a naive, happy-go-lucky, uh, just, just acceptance and, and ignorance of the circumstances. No, it's a deep-rooted confidence that even now, Jesus is with me. Jesus rescues me. Because Jesus is coming again. That's the gospel hope that you and I need when all goes wrong, when you lose your job, when the world falls apart. You need confidence then that Jesus is with you. Because he died for your sins, he has been raised from the dead, and he is coming again. Therefore, his promises remain true now. See, joy is not merely an emotion. It's not merely this happiness. It's not plastering a smile on your face even when you don't feel it. No, we live in a broken world where sometimes our emotions don't match the reality of what God has said. See, this kind of joy, it's not a mere emotion. It's a deep confidence 
confidence in God's promises and a confidence knowing that your faithful endurance will please God. Joy is trusting God in the sorrow, in the heartache, because God has proven his love for us. Joy is this faithful perseverance and endurance in the hope of the gospel. John Stephen Akwari was a world-class distance runner who ran the, the, the marathon in the Mexico City Olympics, representing his home country of Tanzania. But he didn't end up on the podium. There was no award for him. Because about halfway into this race, he got tangled up with other runners as they were jostling for position in a marathon. And he went down onto the ground hard, tore apart his knee, wounded his shoulder. Medical staff told him, you shouldn't keep going. But he kept running. Well, to call it running would be a little bit unfair. It was more like a, a limp, a slow gait, a, a, a painful trot to the finish. By the time he arrived, the winners had been finished for more than an hour. The sun had already set. The Olympic Stadium had largely emptied. There were just a few thousand people scattered around the stadium. But when John Stephen Akwari entered the stadium, the crowd began to cheer. Recognizing what they were seeing, a man bandaged and limping to the finish line, a, a reporter on the scene captures the moment. He says, today we have seen a young African runner who symbolizes the finest in the human spirit, a performance that lifts sport out of the category of playing games, a performance that gives meaning to the word courage. All honor to John Stephen Akwari of Tanzania, the last place finisher. The images of him limping across the line with his leg bandaged, his knee dislocated, are powerful. But it's his eloquence in responding to a reporter's question at the finish line that captured headlines around the world. When asked why, why would you keep running? Others finished Others, others stopped the race. More than, more than a dozen runners didn't finish that year just because of the grueling nature of the course. Why, after such a bad injury, would you keep going? And Aquari responded, I don't think you understand. My country did not send me to Mexico City to begin the race. My country sent me to finish the race. See, it was his perseverance that captured people's hearts. The television stations stopped picturing the people on the podium and turned the cameras to him. Because that's the Olympic ideal, the Olympic spirit, the perseverance, the courage. You see, what Paul is telling us as believers is all the time, in all circumstances, give thanks to God. Persevere, be joyful, pray continually. And we see how prayer then and, and when Paul says pray continually, he doesn't mean every conscious moment of your thought needs to be devoted to prayer. Otherwise, you have all just failed. Okay, now a few of you were praying that you can stay awake and keep paying attention, but the rest of you, the rest of you weren't. No, Paul's not saying every conscious moment of your life is meant to be in prayer. No, he's saying the attitude of your life is one that prayer is something you would do continually, regularly, consistently, persistently. 
And prayer can, can give us the confidence to persevere through difficult times. Because we are reminded of what has God done for me? Jesus Christ died for my sins. God raised him from the dead. When we pray, we are reminded of God's faithfulness to us in answered prayers. When we pray, we're reminded of, of God's grandeur and glory as we worship him for his greatness and love. We, re, we remember the promises of God. He will, Jesus will come again. And when we pray, we confess our sins and come before God in humility so that we come before God with gratitude. So that, verse 18, thanksgiving becomes the, the overflow of our lives. The joy rooted in the gospel, nurtured by a life of prayer, overflows into praise and thanksgiving to God. And again, Paul is all-encompassing by saying, give thanks in all circumstances. Such that New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce summarizes the Christian life based on these verses. The Christian life is to be lived in an atmosphere of continuous joy, continuous prayer, continuous thanksgiving. Joy, prayer, and thanksgiving are marks of Christian obedience, gratitude overflowing because of what God has done for us. That's the change, the inward transformation that we need. The inner change, though, that, that we see in this passage comes to us from the outside. This isn't a, a, a scrub your life and, and get yourself better kind of approach to living. No, look at the end of verse 18, and, and it'll be most clear in verses 19 to 22. Paul tells us to be joyful, pray continually, and give thanks. Why? And again, the division of the verses there is, is added later. Paul didn't put the numbers for us. So these three commands are all meant to be read together. They're just easy to memorize in separate verses. We, we are joyful, we pray, and we give thanks. Why? For this is God's will for you. Because God commands it. This is God's declared will of how we should live. The, the Christian life is a life of obedience to the commands of God, acknowledging God to be the one who is at work in us. And we see this connection between God's will, what he commands of us, and our obedience action. We, we, we saw it back in chapter 4, so look there at verse 3. God's will prompts our obedience. Chapter 4, verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality. And then he goes on, and we, we looked at this weeks ago, of how God wants to transform our hearts as we come to him in obedience. We obey because it is the will of God. We are joyful. We pray. We give thanks because God is at work in us. This change we need comes to us from the outside. It is found at the end of verse 18 in Christ Jesus. God's will revealed to us in Christ Jesus. God's will applied to us in Christ Jesus. God's will given to us through Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave himself for us. And so when we are united to him by faith, then we have the confidence. But if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ, then, then a life of joy, a life of prayer, a life of, of, of thanksgiving becomes discouraging. It becomes overwhelming. If you keep trying to pick yourself up and do it in your own strength, you think, but the next wave is, is right there to knock me back down. How would I do this? No, what, what Paul is saying is you have to be found in Christ Jesus. You have to have put your trust in Christ Jesus. You need to belong to Christ Jesus. His death, his acceptance of your sin, that must count as your death by putting your trust and your faith in him. 
united to Christ. And so then we see that through the work of Jesus Christ, then we have verses 19 to 22, the power of God's Spirit at work through God's Word. All right, so, so let, me, let me show you what I mean here in verses, verses 19 to, to 22. First, look at verses 19 and 20. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Those seem like, wait, what are we talking about? I thought we were just talking about giving thanks, and then Paul just throws these what feel like random commands into us. It, no, this is not Paul just sort of, oh wait, what were all the things that I was supposed to tell them? And this is sort of the, the last three seconds on the telephone, you know, as you're, as you're trying to rush into the, or this isn't the like end of the, 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 the list of things you need to pick up at the store, and oh, this is just what Paul forgot to tell us. We better get it in here. No, this is connected to a life of spiritual obedience to God because we need to see God's Spirit at work within us, and listen to God's Word. Again, look at verses 19 and 20. What is he saying? Do not put out, do not quench the Spirit's fire. Do not stifle the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the church. Do not, verse 20, treat prophecies with contempt. When someone stands and prophesies, when someone enabled by God's Spirit says, thus saith the Lord, you need to listen. And remember, remember the context of the church in Thessalonica. This is one of the, the church plants of Paul on his second missionary journey. This is during the apostolic era. Remember, I've, I've told you that 1 Thessalonians may be the very first New Testament document written on parchment. So when they need to hear the Word of God, they turn to the Old Testament and then in this apostolic age, they have men and women who serve as prophets and prophetesses who stand in the worship of God, empowered by God's Spirit, and apply the truth of God to the people. And Paul is saying, don't stop that. Because it's easy if somebody says something that you kind of don't like to justify your way out of it. I think she's only standing and saying that because of what I said to her last week. I don't think that's really from Jesus or his spirit, I think she's just mad at me, so I'm not going to listen to that. Or, you know what, that doesn't really align with, you know, what my Thessalonian friends are doing this weekend, so I'd rather ignore that command. Paul is saying, do not quench the work of God's spirit. Do not give up listening to God's word. See, Paul is showing us the the power of the Spirit at work through God's Word. And then, and then remember the greater position that you and I are in compared to the Thessalonian church. They have now one letter of the New Testament. You and I have the whole thing written down. We're in a much better position than they were. Now you think, but, but wouldn't it be great if, if prophets and prophetesses stood and said, thus saith the Lord. But the problem is, you know, in your own heart, you are so quick to justify your own behavior that you would very easily quench the work of God's Spirit because we are quick, perhaps, to do it even with the written Word of God. Uh, if, if you want to hear God speak, if you wish, you could hear God give you insight for right now. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. That's how another pastor, John Piper, summarizes, listening to the Word of God. If you want to hear him speak, read it out loud. 
because you and I have the Word of God given to us. And yet we are those that are willing, when it's not comfortable, to ignore the truth that's given to us. Because when we read verse, look now look at verse 21. And, and again, these commands sort of feel like they're coming out of nowhere, but there's a, there's a conjunction here that connects these verses. It's not translated because we would normally translate it, but, which would make it feel like, well, but test everything. And then, well, is that disconnected? No, it's a conjunction, though, reminding us here, it's left untranslated in our English, that connects verses 21 and 22. We're talking about the same thing. We're talking about hearing the Word of God in our lives. But when you and I hear that phrase, test everything, then hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil, we hear that through our cultural lens. We hear it as if somebody makes the argument, you need to be on the right side of history. And when we look at the morality of, of, of the Bible, it's on the wrong side because it, it affirms an ancient, a, a foolish, a naive way of living. See, when somebody makes that argument, and, and they would, might even think, well, isn't Paul agreeing with me? He says, test it, and they get rid of what's junk and keep what you like. That's what we hear. No, there is a, there is a right way to make that argument, to be on the right side of history. Paul made it in chapters 4 and 5. The line, though, that he draws is the line that is coming when Jesus Christ returns at that line which is drawn in history, you need to be found on the right side of it through faith in Christ. Otherwise, you face his judgment. But when we make that argument today, usually what the person who says you should be on the right side of history, what they're really saying is you should agree with me and my friends because we figured it out. But that's no real argument at all. That's just saying, hey, I took a poll, and the people that I like all agree with me, and so you're on the wrong side of history. That's not what Paul is saying, though, when he says, test everything. He's not saying it tested according to your standards. No, what is he saying? Test everything according to the work of the Spirit announced through the prophetic Word of God. Test everything according to God's Word. Because the real argument is not, do you agree with me or not? The real argument is, upon what authority do you speak? What is true? You and I need God's authority. And so, yes, we are to hold on to the good. The good that's announced to us in the prophetic word. The good that you hear from a brother or sister. It's why I want you to have your Bible open while we're preaching. Because I want you to be able to look and say, I don't think Kevin understands what this means. You need to test what you hear in a Sunday school class, what you hear in, in a book you read, what you hear in a devotional, you need to test it against the Word of God, not against your own opinions. But see, it's not merely those who make that, that right side of history argument that are tempted to do that. We all are. We're all tempted to sort of shrug off, well, that seems kind of hard, God. I mean, just go back to chapter 4, to live lives of, of, of sexual integrity. That seems kind of hard. Have you seen what my friends are doing? But we're to test everything according to God's word, not according to what's comfortable to us. And so we hold on to the good. We allow God's spirit to transform us by the power of his word. We avoid every kind of evil. And yes, we could apply that broadly, avoid every kind of evil. But, but specifically, when God's word tells you it is evil, avoid the evil. That's our, our test, our measure, is the Word of God. We need a radical and personal transformation that comes to us 
from the outside by the Spirit of God at work in us, announcing the Word of God. And, and just, to, just to prove that point a little bit, bit more clearly, I'm going to steal from next week's sermon. So look at the next verse. I actually haven't heard next week's sermon yet, but, the, but this is the verse that Pastor Tom will begin reading for us. Look at verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. This is a transformation that happens internally that comes to us from God. He is the one at work in us. How does he do that? We just, we just saw it by his spirit changing us. When we hear God's word, that's how God works in our lives. It is God's will that you should be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks. It's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so put your trust in Jesus Christ. That is our gospel hope. Our hope is rooted in the work of Jesus on our behalf. He's the one who died. He is the one who is coming again. It is his grace given to us. Our obediences are joy-filled. Grace response to his grace made known to us. Now, I have this ongoing symbol of what a great week I had at Halawasa. But, but one of the other big memories I have, besides the fact that my sister got through a whole week of camp without showering, she just said going, you know, she went in the lake every day, so I guess that counted. Um, but my other big memory of that week is one of the songs we learned. We learned a song around the campfire and, and sang it. It was a simple gospel song, one that stuck with me. It's one I've, I've taught some of our preschoolers here when I do chapel on Wednesday mornings. It's a simple song. Maybe you've heard it. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. It's a beautiful, simple tune that we sang around the campfire. But it rooted me in the gospel. So that week is not, not great because I was recognized for my greatness. That week was great because Jesus was exalted for his greatness. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would apply this gospel truth to our lives. That even hearing the simplicity of a song that transformed a child's life would remind us of your grace and mercy and love. That Jesus Christ paid my debt. He died for my sins. He was raised from the dead. And Lord, we rejoice in the promise that Jesus is coming again. So help us to live lives filled with joy. Lives marked by prayer. Lives overflowing with thanksgiving. Because we hear your word. We know your spirit at work in our hearts. Lord, do the work of transforming us from the inside. Do the work of, of, of transforming us by the power of your word. Make us a church that is committed to the truth of your gospel. Make us bold in our witness for you, our faith before you. And Lord, I pray that even as we gather today for a picnic, that you would strengthen us in conversation, that as we hear one another's stories, as we pray with one another, as we encourage one another, that our, our lives would be strengthened by the community of, of God, the gospel here at Faith. Lord, we pray even for the food. We thank you for those that are serving by preparing it. 
Pray that it would strengthen us for work in your kingdom. Lord, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the grace that is ours, that we who are worshiping idols are now worshiping you, the true and living God, because Jesus Christ is the one you raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the one who is coming again. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Rescuer. And so we pray in his name. Amen.